The author of Ruth writes this, first two verses. She says, says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And Naomi said to her, Go, my daughter. Stop right there. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, as we come together gathered by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the finished work of Jesus Christ, and by the love of the Father, uh, we have your word wide open before us. And as we open up your word, we pray that your spirit would open up our hearts and our minds and our souls to receive what the spirit would say to the church. We thank you, God, that everything that you say and everything that you do is so good, even when we don't understand it. And so we ask that you would just prepare us for the word that you would have for us, for what you're doing in our lives, individually, but also corporately, as a church here in the coastlands. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you might be, this might be your first time today. Maybe you have been gone for a couple weeks and we're right in the middle of Ruth chapter 2. Maybe you're already asking yourself questions. What does gleaning mean? Who is Naomi? What is Ruth? Why are we here? What's the significance of this first couple? Of, you know, who's Elimelech? There's all this stuff going on. If I could just take some time to explain the context of what we're about to read with a personal story of my own. You're going to like this. Years ago, uh, for my nine-year anniversary with my wife, Brianna, who I met right out those doors many years ago, uh, we celebrated our anniversary by going to New York City. And when we were in New York City, uh, I wanted to do one thing. It was just one thing. Uh, I had read this book uh, earlier on in my upbringing here at Reality Carpinteria called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. Uh, written by Pastor Jim Cimbala, and it's all about the power of prayer, and it was super formative for this church and for me, and he has a church right there in Brooklyn, so I looked at Brianna, and I was like, we got to go to Jim Cimbala's church in Brooklyn, the church where they pray, I want to go see it, and they have that choir, it's going to be awesome, so she was like, yeah, okay, and we went on our anniversary, and it was that first week of January, so it was New Year's Day, we went to the church, there were 3,000 people in the auditorium, we went up into the mezzanine floor and sat down, we were just soaking it in, and worship began, and we got carried away, and people were just going straight into the throne room of God. It was awesome. And then Jim Cimbala gets up, the pastor there, and he tells everyone to sit down, and then he does his warm welcome, where he's like, Happy New Year's, everybody! And then he, stand, uh, he stands up and he says, Is anyone here visiting on New Year's Day? Would you please stand up? You glad we don't do that here at this, at this church? And about 100 people stand up, including myself and Brianna, and everyone's cheering, yeah, and he tells us to sit down. He says, stand up if you're visiting and you've ever sung in a choir before. And so only 40 people get back up. Brianna and I sit down because we've never sang in a choir before. And Jim Cimbala looks at everybody standing, about 40 people, and he says, how would you like to sing with the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir? <laughs> Silence. Everyone's just looking at him like this. And he says it again. He's all, no, I'm serious. If you're visiting, you've sung in a choir before, come on down, sing with the choir, one more song, yeah. And people are rushing to the stage like, yeah, there's this euphoria in the air, singing with this Grammy Award-winning Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. And I'm sitting there in the mezzanine floor like this, twiddling my thumbs going, oh, that's so great. I wish I, 
I wish I could do that. That would be so awesome. I mean, I've, I've led worship. I, was, I led worship at my church that past Sunday, but I've never sung in a choir before. But it's probably not a big deal. I'm justifying all of this in my mind as I go. And I'm like, but it's probably not that hard, right? I know they won some Grammy Awards, but it couldn't be that difficult. I mean, I sang in a church. I could sing in a choir. And I look over at Brianna, and she's got this gleam in her eyes. And that's all I needed. I jump over the banister. I run down into the bottom floor. And I make my way up onto the stage with the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. And I knew I was immediately out of place when I asked this young boy next to me, like, uh, where do I go? And he says, well, what are you? And I said, I'm a boy. I'm a man. He's all, no, like, are you an alto? Are you a soprano? What are you? I'm all, I don't know. He says, just go over there. So I find myself between two grown men. And uh, the song starts to, starts to, it starts. And so I, I begin, I recognize the song. I'm like, okay, here I am to worship. That's awesome. Thank you, Lord, for that song that I recognize. And I start singing the song, and I'm getting comfortable with the song. And I'm getting more confident. And I'm like, this is, this is everything that I dreamed it would be. And I begin to sing a little louder, and I puff my chest out a little more. And I sing as loud as I can. I want the two guys next to me to hear my voice. And so I'm, I'm kind of doing it. And about halfway through the song, I realized something. Everyone around me is moving, you know, like choirs do. In fact, it's not just the choir, but the whole church is doing this, this choir thing. They're like doing the steps. The whole church, thousands of people. So hard are they doing the, these steps that the mezzanine floor where Brianna is is shaking under the weight of it. Everyone in the building, 3,000 strong, are shaking, are, are moving side to side to the song, except for one guy, <laughs> this guy. To make matters worse, I had on, like, everyone in the choir, everyone in the church was dressed to the nines. They had muted, neutral, gray suits, except for me. I had this bright red plaid shirt on and a baseball cap. And I asked Brianna later, I, I said, did, did you notice that I wasn't moving? And she was trying to be encouraging, and she was like, you look like a pole just holding your ground in the wind. <laughs> And so in that moment, I tried to, I'm all, oh, no, I'm messing up. This is my dream. I mess, I'm messing this up. And so I start moving. I had to learn the steps in the choir at that moment. And so I get it down. I'm moving back and forth. I'm moving back and forth. And I realized that I stopped singing once I started moving. <laughs> in that moment, I had this, this realization that I can't sing and move my feet at the same time. And I'm realizing all of this on the floor of the Grammy Award-winning Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. And so I start moving and moving my lips, and it's coming out like a squeaky bird, but that's okay. I'm doing both. And then I look up, and I see that I'm moving in the opposite direction as the choir. I look like a, a pair of broken windshield wipers. We went through two songs that ended, and I walked off the stage uh, with my head hanging low. I didn't want to look at anybody or anything. I was embarrassed and humiliated and my wife was laughing just like you are. <laughs> Sometimes things don't work out the way that you thought. Sometimes you've got big aspirations and big dreams, ways that you think life is supposed to work out, your five-year plan, your 10-year plan, and it doesn't work out the way that you thought. That experience was funny in retrospect. It wasn't funny at the time. It's funny now. But other times, they're not so funny. Other times, the way that life works out is we lose our health. Other times, we lose our loved ones. 
Sometimes we're living life and it's wonderful and great and full of laughter and joy and all of a sudden something happens to shake up everything. Sometimes life doesn't work out the way that we want. And if you can understand that, you can understand the first two verses of Ruth chapter 2. In that single word at the end of verse 2 where it says glean. You know what the word glean is? It's an Old Testament word from Leviticus and Deuteronomy where God told farmers who were harvesting crops not to take everything but to leave some stuff on the ground or by the edges so that the poor of the community could glean. This is Ruth. She's poor. If you've been following the story for the past couple weeks, you also know that she's a widow. And in that day, in the first century, uh, or excuse me, in, the, in those ancient days in the Middle East and in that area, to be a widow meant some stuff. It meant that you were shamed. It meant that you were lonely. It meant that you were poor. But it went far beyond that. You see, in that age, your entire sense of security and protection was wrapped up in a male in your family. It was either a husband or it was your older brother. But if you didn't have an immediate male in the family and you were a widow, this was tantamount to a death sentence. You had no rights. You had no way out. There was nothing you could do. You had no sense of power over your life. And Ruth, who started off her life as a Moabitess, marrying into this wonderful, seemingly uh, well-to-do family with an Israelite mother-in-law who actually liked her, things are looking good for, for Ruth. But sometimes things don't work out quite the way that we planned, right? Sometimes life doesn't work out the way that we thought. And in one fell swoop, Ruth finds herself losing everything, not just her means, but her way of life, her relationships, her love, and her ability to sustain and keep her own life. It was said in that day that if you were a widow with no male in the family, your only options to stay alive was prostitution or begging. This is now what's facing Ruth and Naomi another widow in the family. And you can tell, you know, in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, God makes this allowance. It's, it's actually Israelite law that you are supposed to allow the poor in your community to glean a little bit. It wasn't a lot. It was just a few sheaves here and there. It's uh, equivalent to trying to eke out a, a living by collecting aluminum cans for recycling. It's not a lot, but it's God's merciful heart trying to get the people of Israel to care for the poor, the widow, the immigrant, the sojourner. And she finds herself in that spot, gleaning among the ears of grain. And then she says, after him in whose sight I shall find favor. That's what she says to Naomi. I'm going to find somebody who favors me that I can glean in their field. Now notice, she doesn't need to do that. This is God's law. The, the people of the land had to give Ruth what was, what was left over. And yet she seems so broken, so vulnerable. She seems like she's been so uh, just steamrolled by the circumstances of life that there's a reluctance in her. I'll go glean among the fields of those people who are being kind to me. I'll go find somebody who actually looks my way and will allow me to glean in the fields. 
In other words, what was her right by biblical law? She can barely, she barely seems to be able to think about. She's shut down, timid from the pain, perhaps, that she's lived through the last few years. Maybe that describes some of us in this room. We too can shut down because we've been through so much pain and disappointment, disillusionment, discouragement. Maybe for you, you've been through so much in your life that is negative that you're now tempted to think that God is upset with you and has abandoned you. In other words, you're correlating your negative experiences with a God that is distant. And yet if we look at the whole story of the Bible, if we look just at Ruth chapter 2, we see the opposite of that. We see a merciful God who is actually working even when you are unable to see Him working. We see a God working in your circumstances even though He might not be working the circumstances the way that you would like Him to work them. But if we look at the story of Ruth, if we look at the whole story of the Bible, we see that God is always working even when we can't see it. I want you to read with me the rest of this passage, at least of verse 3 through 9. This will be on the screen for you or in your Bibles or on your devices. It says, so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young, uh, his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is that? Is that over there? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came... And she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go ahead after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. This passage is a picture a reflection of the character and heart of God. And we see it in a number of ways. We see it partly through Boaz's treatment of Ruth. We also see it partly through Ruth's response, no matter how reluctant it is. We see that God is moving. In other words, I I love this verse, uh, verse 3. Look at verse 3. It says, She happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, the distant relative the one Naomi was hoping that she would run into. This is, this is unbelievable. Because when you went to, uh, to, to the fields to reap crops, it wasn't like there were five of them and they all had these neon signs that identified this was the one you're supposed to go to. Boaz, 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 Boaz. <laughs> it was just an, an unending landscape of fields unmarked except for maybe a few stones and rocks, and you hope you found the right one. And Ruth, Ruth is walking through these fields, and the text tells us she just happened to go across Boaz's field. I believe this is the author intending to uh, inscribe to you, describe to you the sovereign action of God 
who is working in your circumstances even when you don't notice and even when you can't tell. He just leads her to the right place at the right time. God is always leading. Are we allowing him to lead us? She just happened to come to this part of the field. It gets even better. In verse 5, Boaz actually sees Ruth and says, who is that? In other words, he singles her out in the same way that God is singling you out right now. Some of you who are in the middle of a building with hundreds of people, you feel isolated and alone. You feel like you've been going through a lot of stuff in your life by yourself. God is watching you. He's got his eyes on you. Psalm 139 says that he's intimately acquainted with your ways. He even numbers the hairs on your head. He knows you better than you know yourself. Just like in the story where Boaz turns around and says, who is that? Tell me about her. As if it couldn't get any better, Boaz comes up to Ruth and says, Now listen, my daughter, do not go glean in any other field or leave this one, but keep close to my people, keep close to my young women. What is he saying there? He's referring to his tribe. He's actually bringing Ruth into his household. He sees her. He singles her out. After a sovereign act of God brings her his way, he brings her into his household for protection, for sustenance, as a tremendous act of providence and grace. God is always working, and he's always active, even when life doesn't work out the way that we want. Unfortunately, we can sometimes miss God because we're unaware that he's actually working. We can be so focused on our circumstances that we end up missing what God is doing right in front of us. I didn't realize it was so hot in this room, so I'm going to take the sweater off if that's cool. guys run that heat real good. (laughs) My son, uh, I have two kids, Abby and Jude, like the Beatles songs, if you forget. And Jude is four, Abby is six. And Jude has this fascination with boxes, uh, including on his birthday or for Christmas when we give him presents. And it's kind of Brianna and I's running joke that he loves the boxes more than he loves what's inside. On occasion, he never even gets to what's inside. He just likes cardboard. He's so fascinated and obsessed with cardboard boxes, he steps into them, he puts them on his head, he throws them at his sister, he does all sorts of things with these cardboard boxes. And there have been times, you know, on his birthday or at Christmas when we give him gifts, that Brianna and I, almost like in a blend of exasperation and sheer love just yell at him, like, look in the box, bro. Like, it's not about the box. Jude's so focused on the external things. can so easily miss out on what his mom and dad have actually brought to him. Maybe Maybe this is descriptive of some of us today. I know in a room this size, there's men, women, Maybe even some children that are going through some stuff that's indescribable. 
difficult. And it can be so easy, even as Christians, to be so fascinated and even obsessed with the box, that which surrounds my life, that which hems me in, that which tempts then to define who I am, the circumstances, the problems, the difficulties. Perhaps we might even lose the ability to hear our loving Father out over here screaming to us, look outside of the box. What I love about this passage is that even though Ruth seems to start with a little bit of reluctance, maybe even a little bit of trepidation or vulnerability, she still responds. Even if her only response is a weak one, even if it's the only thing she has and can afford to give, she still steps out and offers it. I love this. This is also a reflective story of what God is waiting for. He's not asking for the whole world. Some of us in this room have nothing to give God except for our pain. This almost seems like that's what Ruth is doing. She's responding. I'm just going to read this passage. Uh, Ruth chapter 2, verse 10 through 13. It says, She fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes? She's speaking to Boaz. That you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner. See that? She's living out of this painful place of her identity. Not only is she poor, but she's a foreigner. She doesn't belong here. She doesn't deserve kindness. She doesn't deserve anything. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did, know, uh, did not know before. For those of you that might have missed uh, the, uh, a week or two ago, Ruth, marrying into the family, had a chance to opt out and find another husband who could save her life before she got too old. And instead of doing that, she chose to stick with Naomi. She opted into that family, and she was staying in that family, even if it cost her her dignity and even her life. Boaz is highlighting that, saying, I heard about you. You left everything to join a family that wasn't even yours. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. This is a passage about grace, about getting what we just perhaps didn't deserve, perhaps what we couldn't attain for ourselves. And Ruth responds to that. Even though it's not the most incredible response, it's nothing to write home about, she just steps out a little bit. In verse 11, we're told that she draws near to God's people. Boaz says, you left your own father and mother and, uh, and your native land and came to a people that you didn't know before. You joined the nation of Israel. You joined our people. You joined our family. You left everything for that. In verse 12, he highlights how she's now drawing near to their God. It's under his wings that you've come to take refuge. And it might at this point sound like there's this merit in Ruth's life. 
that she somehow pulled herself up by the bootstraps, did a few spiritual things right, and Boaz is saying, you fit into the club because you're awesome. You had some problems in your life. You overcome them. No problem. That's awesome. That's, that's what we're about. We're about people who can fix their own problems. That's not what he says. It may sound like that on the surface, but it actually seems like Boaz is simply highlighting her faith. She didn't know how life was going to turn out. She had nothing to supply. She had nothing to give. For Ruth, in fact, all she could do was wait for someone to step in on her behalf. In verse 7, it says, in chapter 2, verse 7, as the, the foreman is giving a report to Boaz, it says, she, she asked me to let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. And so she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. That might sound like she's been gleaning all day. Maybe she's been doing a little bit. But most scholars look at that phrase, she's continued here now, which means literally she's been standing here to mean that she's actually not gotten a chance to glean yet. She asked the foreman, and the foreman had to wait for the landowner to come to that plot of land. And so Ruth has been standing in that place all day waiting for the go-ahead. She's been doing nothing but waiting For Ruth, all she could do was wait. And faith sometimes means opening up what little you have to God, including your pain. For Ruth, it was her lack. It was her foreign status. It was her shame. And it was the fact that all she could do was stand there in a plot of land that wasn't her own and wait. For you, what's the point of your pain? What's the place of your pain? If faith means opening up what little you have to God, what might that be for you? Maybe some of you are in this room, you're like, I've got nothing. I got no money. I got no joy. I've got no relationships. All I've got is grief and sadness. And yet Ruth, with very little to her own name, takes even that, the painful part of her life, and she opens it up in all of its vulnerability to God. For you, maybe it's a broken relationship. For you, maybe it's depression. Maybe it's unemployment. Maybe it's addiction. Maybe it's burnout. Maybe you're lonely. Maybe you're waiting too. Maybe you're waiting for a door to open and that door has not been opening for 10 years. But like Ruth, all you can do is wait and open up that space to God. For some of us, we might have the opposite reaction. When life is difficult, when it doesn't go the way that we thought, the way that we hoped, when it's painful, when it's difficult, we try to escape our pain. We try to run from it. We try to suppress it. We try to mull it over, hide it, or self-medicate from it. And yet Ruth just waits there. She sits there in all of her vulnerability, standing in a plot of land, unable to do anything except wait with a kernel of faith. Sometimes we try to escape our pain, but from the story in Ruth, we see that sometimes the breakthrough is waiting in our place of pain. Sometimes the breakthrough is in your pain. 
Sometimes the biggest move of God happens at the lowest points in our life. Sometimes God doesn't take you through the fi- uh, take you out of the fiery furnace like with uh, uh, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Sometimes His whole purpose for your life is to bring you through the fiery furnace. Sometimes his whole purpose for your life is not to help you to escape the lion's den, but to allow you to sit in the lion's den as he shuts their mouths. Sometimes God's breakthrough in your life is waiting in the pain. And how many of us have wrapped up any kind of real breakthrough in our circumstances? If I just got a better job, if I just made more money, if I just found the right someone, if this problem just disappeared, if my kids would just do what I told them to do, My parents would just do what I told them to do. If I was just healthy and free from drama, that would be my breakthrough. Maybe God is saying something else to you. Maybe saying your breakthrough is in the waiting and it's waiting in the pain because God is working even when you can't see it. And what he's working on is sometimes not a change in your circumstances, but a change in your identity. This story is a picture of the grace of God who meets us in our pain. And God will certainly bring Ruth out of some of those circumstances. He'll certainly show favor on her financially and in a variety of ways. But it seems like his ultimate goal is to change her at the core of who she is. He gives her a new identity. The story ends with a switch in identity. Where God, by his grace, is chipping away at some of her defenses. I love how her first response in verse 10 is, Why have I found favor in your eyes? And three verses later, she says with a little bit more confidence, I have found favor in your eyes. There's a book uh, by the name of Le Miserable. You might have seen the movie. With that gladiator dude singing all the parts. <laughs> They're both good, but the, move, uh, the book captures a bit of the redemptive quality of the story a little bit better. You don't have to read the book. I'll just tell you what it is. <laughs> um, there's a young man by the name of Jean Valjean, who's a pretty decent guy. Had the whole world in front of him. Everything that he's ever dreamed. And like so many of of us in this room, life just didn't turn out the way that he hoped. Finds himself unjustly imprisoned for 19 years. And while he's in prison, he becomes victimized and bitter and self-righteous. And whereas he went into prison as a decent young human being, he comes out of prison a criminal. Life doesn't work out for Valjean. And he's reacting to the pain. A bishop, Bishop Muriel, finds him and takes him into his home, showers him with love, shows him adoration and kindness and grace. And Jean Valjean, who's still reacting from a place of pain, doesn't know how to do anything else except to bite back in his pain. 
And so, in the story, as the story goes, he steals some of Bishop Muriel's silverware when he's not looking, some of his precious silverware, and he escapes into the night. But he gets caught by these police officers, and the police officers bring him back to Bishop Muriel's residence uh, by the nape of the neck, and they say, we caught this criminal, and he was stealing all your stuff. Jean Valjean is hanging out there in the living room with his head down, full of shame, and Bishop Muriel surprises everybody in the room by saying, oh, you didn't steal those. I gave them to him. Gendarmes or the police officers respond, are you, are you sure? Bishop Muriel says, yeah, I'm sure. And actually, I'm so glad that you came back, uh, uh, Valjean, because you forgot the candlesticks too. <laughs> Grabs a bundle of priceless candlesticks, puts them into the arms of the criminal, and the officers walk away. And as they walk away... As the story goes, Bishop Muriel grabs Jean Valjean, lifts up his face and says, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I buy from you. I withdraw it from black thoughts and the spirit of perdition, and I give it back to God. In that moment, everything Valjean ever wanted to uh, wanted was handed to him despite his mistakes, in spite of his pain, in spite of his status. And that is a picture of the kingdom of God, the gospel of God's kingdom that is offered to people like you and me, even though we don't deserve it, even though we fail to achieve it, even though our life is such a burden that we can't even find ourselves standing up. And yet to receive it, we still, by faith, have to look up at the God of grace and respond. And Ruth does that. She doesn't have anything super spiritual to offer God. She can't pull herself up by the bootstrap. She's got no money. She's got no status. She doesn't seem to have any modicum of spirituality. All she's got is her pain. And so she stands in her pain waiting as an act of faith. Maybe that's all you've got today. See, God, as in the story of Ruth, is reaching out to every single person in this room through the person and work of Jesus Christ. In the midst of what you're going through, and perhaps you're telling yourself this lie right now, I've got to fix my life first. I've got to get this steady job. I've got to fix my family. I've got to fix myself. I've got to free myself from this addiction. I've got to clean up this mess. I gotta start coming to church. I gotta read the Bible more. I gotta do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And you have no idea that the God of the universe is stooping down right behind you, saying, You guys, it's not about the box. Look up. If there's anything we can capture for ourselves while reading, Luke chapter 2, at least this first half of Luke chapter 2, is that the way of freedom for us in this room, no matter where you are in, uh, at this stage in your life, is to step out. It's not to ignore what you've been going through, not to pretend like it doesn't exist, not to run from it, not to over-spiritualize it, not to pretend like it's not there, but to take what is there and to offer it to God and to say, May I find you in the waiting.
when I walked off that stage at the Brooklyn Tabernacle with my head hanging low, uh, I got stopped halfway down the stairs by this big old fat hand. Stopped me right there. I looked up, and it was Jim Cimbala. <laughs> and he looked at me with his microphone on, and he said, with the biggest bare voice I've ever heard, Thank you so much for singing. I'm so glad you came with us today. I wanted, him to, I wanted to question him a little bit about that. But whereas I was leaving the stage with my shoulders a little lower, I pulled them back just a little bit on my way down. Some of you are going through circumstances in your life that are not circumstantial. It's because you've made a mess of your life. And maybe it was all you could do to roll out of bed and bring yourself to Reality Carpinteria this morning because you don't feel like you deserve to be here. And the truth is, maybe we don't. But like Jim, I think God is trying to tap some of you on the shoulder and saying, a handful of words that maybe we don't deserve but are given to us in Jesus Christ. And I hope you hear them this morning. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that you're here. Thanks for coming. I'm so glad that you're here. And it's not about the box. The circumstances that you're going through that you're tempted to define your life with, that are burdening you, that are pulling you down, things that might not even change after a 35 or 37-minute sermon, things that will still be there on Monday morning and Tuesday morning, that maybe are so bad that they threaten your life in the midst of that. I hope that today you hear the voice of God kneeling down and pulling apart the cardboard box of your life and whispering into your ears, I'm so glad that you're here. I'm going to ask Lucas and the rest of the worship team to come up here because I, I want to give you a way to respond. I want you, if you've never done this before, to do two things. One is to examine and be honest with this. Where is the place of your pain? Your disappointment. Your discouragement, your disillusionment. I don't know what it is or where you've come from, but I know it's there. Where is it? I want you to identify it by the power of the Holy Spirit and not ignore it. If you don't know... Just ask yourself, where have I been reacting in life? Where have I been shutting down? And allow yourself some time as we sing and marinate in the presence of God who is with you, tapping you on the shoulder, saying, I'm so glad that you're here. I want you to identify that place of pain. But don't stay there. Because here's the second thing I want you to do. I want you to ask yourself, how might God be inviting you to wait on him in the midst of your pain. Because the best news that humanity has ever heard in the history of the world 
is that the God of the universe has stooped down low and sent his only begotten son to step into our mess and into our pain as a sign that the kingdom of God, that means his world, has been brought to bear on our broken world. And I don't know what you're going through this morning. But I know that the kingdom of God is enough.